0: Hey everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Robbie, CEO and co-founder of Effective, a fraud and risk management platform that's raised 9.6 million in funding. Robbie, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thanks, Brett. Super excited about this. So, to keep things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe just a bit more about your background?
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm Robbie, one of the co-founders of Effective, as Brett mentioned. Started off my career at, at Google, was part of their fraud and risk team. Worked quite a bit on Google Pay and some of their other properties for close to a decade. Sorry, that's kind of aging me. (laughs) But yeah, after that, joined a startup called Simility as their first employee. So Simility was also a fraud detection software company. The co-founders were my colleagues at Google, so I got the opportunity to join them very early on and see the whole journey with them. Simility. Used to sell into larger enterprise banks Uh, at that time. We had customers like US Bank and Discover and Santander and so on. We eventually got acquired by PayPal in 2018. Uh, Worked at PayPal for a while again as part of their risk group. And then uh, finally left to start effective with three of my very close friends who are my co founders.
0: Can you take us back
1: to working at
0: Google in 2007? What was fraud like back then? And what types <laughs> of fraud
1: were you detecting? Oh, man, <laughs> this is, yeah, pulling me, back. Yeah, it, it was uh, very interesting. I started off working on Google search, uh, with, where it was more about identifying spam and malware and search results and other kinds of techniques that fraudsters used to use we called it arbitrage, right? Like where they created spammy websites and posted Google ads so that people click on those ads and they earn revenue, or they did other kinds of ad fraud, where they either stole credit cards to drive ad campaigns to bad websites, or did things like Competitors became, right? So it's pretty interesting where businesses paid these agencies to basically go and click on their competitors' ads, right? And then, so that they use up their ad budget and their ads stop showing, so that this business's ads start showing up and things of that sort, and, and using bots and all that kind of stuff. So that that was where I spent the first half of my career at Google, and then started working on Google pay where it's the same thing right like that we see right now the same modalities now it's gotten a lot more sophisticated but things like account takeovers, people scamming other folks to to move money, asking people to buy Google gift cards. So Google Play Store had just opened up at that time and they were asking people to buy Google Play gift cards and there's a whole black market. Uh, oh, uh those gift cards—they were being used for money laundering and things of that sort. So yeah, the same same things, uh, but a little less sophisticated, I would say. Now uh, the fraudsters have gotten very very smart. They're using AI like everyone else. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's the ultimate sign that it's mainstream, right? Everyone's using AI. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <The> fraudsters, <laughs> right? Now, when it comes to your inspiration, are there any founders that you really admire and and look up to? Obviously, there
1: are some of these big, prolific founders, like Elon and so on, but I don't want to talk about them. Everyone admires them. I mean, obviously controversial folks, but I think one founder, I think maybe started to admire, especially. Given that I'm in an early stage startup and this was someone I could resonate with really well because they went through this journey just recently. This gentleman called Ashish Gurd, uh, so he's one of the founders and CEO of a company called Eltropy, which is a communication software platform very under the hood. So, not a lot of people know about them. They're based in the valley as well but they serve into credit unions. So they were, I think, one of the first fintech companies to identify that market and really capture that space. Right? So he found that, quote-unquote, product market fit really, really well and doubled down in his go-to market in that very specific niche field and has gotten very, very successful very quickly. So I believe they have close to 600 credit unions as their customers. They're on board like hundreds a month now. So they're growing very, very fast. And he's bringing a lot of this tech, right? So all the new advancements in AI and large scale computes and making it accessible to to an industry like credit unions, which is generally seen as not in the forefront of technology adoption, right? But they're so prolific right now. Yeah, I mean, there are I think around 5,000 credit unions, 5,000 community banks. They, apparently two thirds of the U S population have a deposit account with one of these organizations, right? So they're very core to the U S economy. I mean, even my, the first deposit account that I opened when I immigrated to the U S was the credit union, because no one else was allowing me to open up, open up an account. I didn't even have a social security number and so on, right? But I just don't think about them. So yeah, with all these aspects, I began to admire him. Luckily, was able to convince him to become an angel investor in our company and, and an advisor and so on. So he's been helping us quite a bit. I really really admire him. Something else you
0: mentioned that I want to zoom in on is you know, you're migrating yeah. to the US or when you moved to the US. So how old were you when you
1: made that move? So there were a couple of stints. (laughs) So I moved here for a brief period of time, right after college, I was doing a few courses in university of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, and then went back to India, then came to the U S again while working for Google for a few years then went back again, uh, that actually uh, moved, then went back again, then moved to London for a while. And then with effective, I moved back to the U.S. again. So they had three stints, uh, here, the very first was in
0: 2007. Just what was then? going on inside your head at that point? So take us back to 2007,
1: <laughs> you're, you're flying over. What was your mindset like then? Oh man. Yeah. It was like a culture shock, so, <laughs> uh, for someone coming into the US for the very first time. I mean, it's a very common immigrant story, right? So all you know about the US is through sitcoms and friends and all you and you imagine imagine everything would feel the same. But yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it really, really opened up my avenue and my mind, right? So it was always a kind of fable location that everyone needs to go and experience. And I was very grateful that I had the opportunity to come over and uh, got super inspired. Again, like being part of the UPenn campus and chatting with all my like making friends there, discussing the, just the entrepreneurial spirit that everyone has uh, in this country. Oh man, it really changed the course of my, my life. And I knew that eventually I would want to come back and want to experience this yeah. full on. Yeah. I mean, if anyone has an opportunity to be in the US, I, I would definitely encourage encourage them to at least experience it for some time uh, and go back. Right. I think just the optimism and the entrepreneurial spirit that that this country has, I think there's nowhere else I, I could see it. I mean, I lived in, Dubai for seven years as a kid, lived in London for a while, but nowhere like the U S and especially the Silicon Valley.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You and I are both here in Silicon Valley and there's something magical about this place. I know it said it's dying or it's dead, but I feel like those people aren't going to the right places. Cause yeah, there's like a few bad areas that you avoid and you don't want to walk around, but. Everywhere else is amazing. And the people and the, the density of the, the talent and the investors and the entrepreneurs, it has just an incredible vibe here for lack of a better, uh, better word to describe it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I wouldn't trade for anything <laughs> just yeah. to
0: experience this. Totally agree with you there. Let's switch gears now and, and let's talk about effective. So how we like to frame this is let's start with the problem. So what problem does effective
1: solve? We solve the problem of fraud, right? So broadly speaking, that's the area that we operate in. That's the problem statement that drives us, keeps us up at night, um, right? And the mission for our company is to democratize fraud management, right? We want to make all the technology advancements, the sophistication, Everything that we've experienced and learned at large organizations like Google and PayPal and bring those technologies and make them really accessible and available for financial institutions of any size or shape. And that's the driving mission for our company. And yeah, it's a domain that I'm super passionate about. In my whole career I've been in this domain. And it's the same for all of my co-founders. So we are so, we nerd no out, geek out about any forms of fraud detection technology or models or AI to fight fraud. But there's a driving principle that the main thing that we want to do is make this technology available for everyone.
0: So, you guys are fraud nerds or fraud tech
1: nerds. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> What's it like you know, for these? practitioners who are on the fraud teams, trying to detect these bad actors. What's life like for them? Are they just under attack right now? Or are they just constantly dealing with different types of fraud? Like, can you just paint a picture what it's like to be a practitioner today, battling against these fraudsters?
1: Yeah, man, I don't, (laughs) I would hate to be in their shoes, but, but if you enjoy doing that work, nothing like it, but it's a constant barrage of attacks. That anyone faces, right, when you're in that role. And it's a constant cat and mouse game. Right. So every time you build systems or models or like technology to detect or prevent certain kinds of fraud, the fraudsters just figure that out and try to get around the barriers that you've set. Right. And the pros and cons are it's a never solved problem, right? Because you're always going head on with someone who is as competent or even co- more competent in some situations than you are. And they have the same kind of resources as well. So yeah, it's every day you keep making sure that the safeguards that you have in place are up to date. You are continuously monitoring your either your transactions or your user base for any suspicions or anomalous behavior. and investigating what what that behavior is. Is there any monetary loss that's leading to, or is it some form of illegal activity, like money laundering that's happening? So yeah, a lot of investigative work, both preventive and uh, reactionary, right? So sometimes people get around the safeguards you've set up, and you try to mitigate that problem and stop it from growing bigger. And it used to be that when you're part of larger organizations, you used to get targeted by very large criminal organizations, sometimes even backed up by governments, right? And it used to be a big company problem. But what we are seeing nowadays is a lot of these criminal organizations are starting to shift their focus to even the mid size or the smaller folks as well, because they become very easy targets, right? So they basically, if some kind of fraud pattern they've used to defraud a, let's say, J.P. Morgan Chase, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, J.P.M.C. eventually catches up to it, build systems, and that fraud modality no longer works. Now what they're doing is they're just using the exact same modality and switching over to, say, some mid-sized regional bank, right? And they go from state to state. And once they cover all the states, then they go to the next tier, right? From a regional bank or maybe a smaller community bank or a credit union or a fintech, right? So, So they're just squeezing out more value from the modality that they've built. Rather than stopping and building, trying to identify new ways to get around barriers, they use the same technique and go keep going down market and squeeze as many organizations as they can. So, yeah, we are seeing that happen quite a bit recent past. We we saw like certain fraud patterns, for example, with the PPP loans. Right, uh, this was about two three years ago. A lot of fraudsters were creating like fake companies and fraud rings and just applying for these loans in bulk. Basically, they were defrauding the U.S. government. It was the U.S. government that was funding all of these loans. Now that has stopped. We are seeing the exact same patterns being used to attack like small business loans issued by credit union. Right. So it's it's a little bit scary that even the while other organizations are falling under, are getting attention from these big criminal entities. But that's why we got very motivated to be in this space and build effective as well. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast
0: production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. For these smaller organizations, previously did they have this belief of, hey, we're small fish here, no one's going to be targeting us?
1: Exactly, yeah, that was the case, right? And many of them were fully physical, right? So if you wanted to become a member of a credit union, you walk into a branch physically, they know everyone by face, And by name, they're probably family, friends, like the teller is your family friend and so on, but that's no longer the case, right? So everything is moving digital. So now if you want to apply for a membership, a lot of credit unions or even banks just expect you to download their app and apply for a deposit account or for a loan on the app, right? So the bank doesn't see you physically at any point in time and you could be anywhere to create that relationship with the bank. And the same thing while you're transacting and so on. And that's awesome, right? Because that whole digitization wave had a couple of impetuses. Right? So the first one was a lot of the neo banks like Chime and SoFi started making it so easy to start a banking relationship. Uh, that, And they were targeting the same audience that a lot of the mid-sized financial institutions also target that they were eating up their business, right? So now to compete with them, uh, a lot of credit unions and community banks had to digitize themselves, Mm -hmm. right? Or partner with other fintechs. So that was the first impetus. And then the second was the lockdown, right? With the lockdown, the the branch footfall fell to zero, obviously, and now in order to continue to grow your business and continue to serve your members, you had to invest in, in digital channels, right? So, so all those happened over the course of last four or five years. And now obviously being fully digital, amazing experience for, for folks, right? I think once you get used to interacting with your bank or your credit union to an app, you're not going to go back to a branch, right. <laughs> so you, <laughs> right? no longer, I mean, they can't ask you to come to a branch to deposit a check, for example, mm-hmm. right? So it's, you can't go back, but it's also a great experience. But now you're also getting exposed to fraudsters who can be anywhere, right? your members can be anywhere. The fraudsters can be anywhere as well. So I think that's what's also caught the attention of these organizations that now, Hey, like these guys have digital channels. We have the techniques to get around on them. So let's, let's start. Makes a lot of
0: sense. And I can see how those forces kind of all combine together to make a really compelling case for why now for effective and, and why you're seeing adoption. On the topic of adoption and growth, are there any numbers and metrics that you can share that just highlight the growth that you're seeing today?
1: Yeah. It's been great we had about a year and a half. Actively in the market, so we launched officially a little more than a year and a half. So we launched officially in in January of last year. We have a good number of customers now, like uh, over twenty, a good mix of banks, and credit unions, and and a few fintechs as well that we've been working with. Already, like crazy adoption of our platform within within these banks. We see. I believe as of today, close to $100 million worth of financial product is processed by our platform every single day. So it's pretty eye opening. And, and yeah, we are pretty excited that uh, we are seeing such higher ups And then we're also catching a lot of fraud. In fact, we just did a study with one of our earlier customers. We realized that the fraud loss savings for, for them was close to thirty million dollars every single month. And right? wow. so just by using yeah, just by using some of these new techniques that, that we were able to build. So yeah, it's scary <laughs> and exciting <laughs> that that uh, there is so much usage coming out. And so and like and we are in the critical path, right? So if we go down the payments our onboarding stop right so it becomes very very important that we are doing a really good job not just from catching fraud but also from scalability to reliability so it's, it's a it's a challenging but a pretty exciting problem to solve right? and for a very small early company like ours it's uh, it's great to get this kind of validation how
0: do you balance anti fraud with a seamless customer experience? Because I feel like sometimes when I'm, you know, in my consumer role or in my role as a consumer, sometimes when I'm interacting with things, like the anti-fraud measures make sense, but they're annoying and they're difficult. Exactly. All <laughs> so like, how do you think about finding that balance?
1: Yeah, exactly. That amazing point, Brett. I think, yeah, I completely agree. Like I'm so annoyed that my bank asked me to put in OTP, and and put my password three times for just initiating one single wire. So again, we have some hypothesis around this, We'd we try to not, for example, these are not fraud detection techniques, right? These are just like barriers, right? So the problem is there you're not truly kind of identifying what could potentially be fraudulent. You're just adding barriers or friction to all of your users, right? And we are hoping that that will stop, right? So for example, there was, we were talking to one financial institution a few months ago and they were like, oh, we were facing a lot of wire fraud, right? And then we made some changes to our processes and now the fraud have gone to zero. Right and uh, like oh yeah so so we don't really need a fraud detection software and so on and we were like oh okay that's amazing that you got to do this already in house and then we asked so what did you do and uh, like oh we just stopped uh, processing wires. <laughs> and then, that was like, we like that's okay yeah that's that's great um, right and uh, <laughs> but but yeah on the other end the customers are probably super annoyed, right? Or they would have probably started using some other bank or issuing their wires and then losing that revenue wire processing, right? So I think, yeah, it's like adding these friction points are useful. So as a stopgap solution, but that shouldn't be the way that that you tackle fraud, right? And now with some of the models that are available that we were able to use so we also use a lot of techniques of building these foundational models which are trained on broader user behavior and then we customize them for each use case for every customer and so on Uh, we are able to really detect like two anomalous behavior and then add friction as late in the flow as possible right so only when truly needed that we are confident that this might eventually lead to a fraudulent activity you can add those triggers then right and these models are trained at a user level not at a full population level right so so we look at each user's behavior for example if someone is opening up a deposit account and there's a bit of a fraud risk uh, right so we can still let them come in because opening up an account it uh, doesn't mean there's actually money movement happening yet right mm-hmm. so we can still let them in so they have a very seamless experience of joining creating that relationship then we see we remember what happened at account opening time and then we use that risk score that we've computed to adjudicate the subsequent financial transactions that they might perform right so we keep remembering that history so we know what they have done over the course of their life cycle with the bank and we keep adding and improving and updating our risk profile for each user and then trigger the step- up verifications or even like stop the transaction when we feel they have hit that threshold of riskiness. right So hopefully if you are a good user and you have done certain kinds of transactions before, you don't see any friction at all, right? So if you know that every day at 8.30 a.m., you buy a coffee from Bluestone, you should never see any kind of friction that that transaction is stopped, right? Irrespective of how you pay for the coffee, right? So you might use Card today, you might use Cash App tomorrow or PayPal or Zelle or whatever it is. If you know at the member level, the kind of behavior and money movement that they do, fraud detection becomes very, very powerful right? and very customized to each each individual. That makes a lot of sense.
0: The one thing I hope you do is I hope that you don't make the numbers too long. And if so, I hope you break it up. I have a, uh, one of the things that I use, like the code they send is like 14 digits long and there's no dash or <laughs> anything like that. I'm like, come on, like, come <laughs> yeah, make it a little bit easier for me. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised almost $10 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this process and throughout this journey?
1: I mean, we've been uh, very lucky, I would say. And uh, so the first seed round we raised uh, was when we just started. Uh, this was from Excel. So they were a well, of the backers of Simulity, so they knew us well. We knew them really well and they understood the fraud detection space because of Simulity as well. So we were lucky to raise our first seed round with them. This is pre-product, right? So it in uh, late 2021, just when we started. And then we got some traction, built out our product the first year, ended well, we hit our million dollar ARR goal. So it went really well, right? So, and then we, at that point, like we had revenue coming in, we raised a good amount of money from, from Excel. So we, there was no real need to raise additional capital at that point. And that's a great place to be, right? So where you don't need, where you're not in a dire need for additional capital, then you have the opportunity of picking and choosing the investors that you want to work with, right? And uh, we re- our second round that we did with uh, the fund called Better Tomorrow Ventures here in San Francisco, we really wanted to work with them. Right, so they were great. Like she, I don't know if you're familiar with Sheel and Nihar, uh, one of one of his principals. So we spoke with them. We really enjoyed, and they had like very deep connections with uh, with the fintech ecosystem in the Bay Area and elsewhere. And uh, we wanted to learn from them. We were lucky enough to get an opportunity to have them as investors as well. We ended up raising a little bit more than what we wanted through in this as the capital, but having the opportunity to work with them is, is great. So I think that's something that I would like advise uh, early founders is, uh, at least in the early days, try to go with the investors that you want to work with, right? Like don't worry too much about valuation and equity, because eventually it'll stabilize, right? Like once you, hopefully you grow into a huge company and you raise multiple rounds of capital, eventually it'll stabilize, right? So either you dilute early or you dilute later. Hopefully, if you get to work with great folks, you are creating so much value that you don't need to dilute a lot more in, in the future, right? So so I would say, yeah, just, just prioritize on getting the right people, right partners early on, and makes your life a little bit easier. <laughs> That's a Yeah, there are ten thousand other things to worry about. Then, then.
0: <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Final question for you now, since we're almost up on time. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision here for what you're building in effective?
1: Yeah, our main mission, like I mentioned before, is to democratize fraud detection. Right, so we want to be the de facto fraud prevention partners to all kinds of financial institutions, right? So especially the smaller folks. And we want to make this process of fraud and risk mitigation so easy and so intuitive for organizations to use that it shouldn't be something that they should be worried about, right? So it still always comes up as top of mind for a lot of financial institutions, especially like we saw this with RTP and FedNow and Zelle, where one of the biggest concerns for anyone adopting this instant payment method like FedNow, which truly can revolutionize payments in in this country, is the fear of fraud, right? So we should be in a position where you don't think twice. And you have technologies and access to technologies like ours so easily available that we see true innovation happen in in the financial sector, and I think it can happen. I saw that personally in India with UPI, and and we also had experience with launching in um, Brazil. So yeah, it truly changes uh, changes the ecosystem, and I hope more such revolutions happen in the future. Amazing.
0: I love the vision and I I love everything that you're building as, as you already know, we are up on time though, so we'll have to wrap here before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in and just want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute, where should they go?
1: Yeah, just hit me up on email, ravi at uh, uh, effective.ai or I'm on Twitter. At Sanjay Puri, my last name. I know it's a little hard to remember, but it's also easy to find me because I'm the only one with that name. So, <laughs> and, uh, and search for me on Twitter or uh, just took me an email or LinkedIn, anywhere. Robbie, thank you so much for taking the time
0: to chat. This has been a lot of fun, and I know the audience is going to really love it as well. So thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Thanks a lot, Brett. This was wonderful. Excellent questions. <laughs> All
0: right, keep in touch.